the whole term compatible is saying there's two things that are compatible. There are two, there are two concepts in the world that don't seem compatible, but they, but what the compatibles are saying, they are compatible. Okay. And one of those two things is determinism, theistic determinism. Yes, it is true. God determines whatsoever comes to pass. He is the sovereign. He is the one who controls everything, every decision, every thought, action, deed, everything is determined, but they also hold as compatible with determinism that men are responsible for their choices. In other words, you're still justly punished for what you end up doing. And they will punt to mystery as to how that is. They just believe the Bible teaches both and they are compatible. Hi guys, welcome to the church split. My name is Will. We got Brian with us today. Sup heretics. <laughs> heretics already? Yep. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, don't forget to like and subscribe to the church split. If you're listening on Apple, a five-star review will be great. If you're going to leave us a one-star review, make it spicy. You guys already know the rules. Uh, today, I am very excited to introduce, we have a very special guest with us who's taking the time out of his busy schedule. We have Dr. Layton Flowers with us, which it felt like we had to balance it out because we've had Dr. James White on to talk about textual issues. Now we get to have Dr. Flowers on and we might even have Dr. White back on to talk about Calvinism. That way we have, we're properly balanced as all things should be. <laughs> it is no uh, it is no secret that we are not reformed on this channel. Uh, in fact, I say we push back against it quite a bit on this podcast. Uh, and that is not because we hate reformed brothers and sisters. Uh, we don't hate them. We just think they're wrong. So <laughs> anyway, um, what I have here, guys, is we have his book as well. Go check it out. It's The Potter's Promise. If you want to go ahead and read that, that is also a response to Dr. White's book and to a degree, right, That which is the Potter's Freedom. And then, of course, that apparently was a response to Chosen But Free, which was a response to uh, the other one by Dr. It's a whole thing. <laughs> so anyway, the whole series, like it's a television. Series. Yeah, it really is. You <laughs> kind of have to read it from the beginning and keep working your way up. But it, I think it'll be beneficial for all of you to understand all the perspectives. So anyway, Dr. Layton Flowers, thank you for taking time to come on. How are you? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time out. Um, I was actually surprised when some person messaged me on Instagram and was like, hey, uh, have you ever wanted Dr. Flowers on? I'm like, yeah, I just have no idea how to get a hold of the guy. Uh, they're like, well, I know a guy who knows the guy and I'll see if I can give him your number. I'm like, what? So long story short, now we're here. So um, for all you guys who don't know, Dr. Flowers is a great guy. He's also very flexible. We were going to do this yesterday, but due to my work schedule, we were able to reschedule and he's just been very flexible and I appreciate that. Yeah, so thank you. Anyhow, no yes. So Dr. Flowers, for those of you who are not familiar, those of the, our listeners who are not familiar with what you do, which I have to ask, have you been living under a theological rock if you don't, but <laughs> what would you say, uh, could you just tell our people a little bit about who you are, what you do, things along that nature? Sure. Um, I uh, work for Texas Baptist as the, the director of evangelism and apologetics. Uh, that's my job. I've been a part of the Texas Baptist family and a part of, I was the youth evangelism director for about 13 years. And then uh, several years ago was uh, moved into the, the director position of, direct, uh, of evangelism and apologetics. And so that is my, my real full-time job, but most people know me more online, at least in the theological world for the podcast that I started back in uh, late 2014, uh, called Sociology 101, which really hammers on the issue 
of the doctrine of salvation, especially in regard to the rise of Calvinism uh, within the Southern Baptist Convention. I say that because I'm, I'm a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and that's the dissertation that I wrote was about the rise of Calvinism within the Southern Baptist Convention. And so that 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 was kind of the precipice for starting a podcast on the topic. Um, and uh, somehow, t- some, sometimes people get the impression that that's all I do or that's all I care about. It certainly isn't. It's something that I, I do on the side, much like you. Uh, you guys do this, this podcast on the side in your spare time. It's amazing how much time you have when you don't uh, sit around streaming Netflix and uh, watching Sports Center all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. it's amazing how much time you can have in your day to do fun things like theology podcast. And so that's, that's really uh, the, the the bulk of my ministry positions I do teach at Trinity Seminary uh, as a, a theology professor there, um, which is a great school. If you're looking for an online education, by the way, uh, go to trinitysem.edu. Uh, you're welcome, Braxton Hunter. Uh, he's the the president of Trinity. <laughs> I'm actually there. a student there, so hey, <laughs> there you go. Hey, see, smart smart people think alike. That's a good, good thing. <laughs> so, um, and I, I love that school. It's a great place. Um, and I am also a, a husband. Uh, my wife is Laura, and she is a family marriage counselor, and I have four children, and we live in Garland, Texas, just north of Dallas. Oh, that's awesome. So if she's a marriage counselor, does that how does that work at being married to that? I feel like you'd always find yourself in the wrong. <laughs> like she could always <laughs> flip it on you. She's always right, yes. <laughs> no, she's actually, yeah, she, you know, we, we've, you know, all marriages go through uh, their, their times of struggle, and uh, marriage is work. And, and so we did have uh, to go to marriage counseling for a time in our marriage. And we're not afraid to talk about that. I mean, I think that that's sometimes a stigma or something that's seen as a weakness. I think it's actually a weakness not to have seen some kind of counselor or help during uh, your lifespan, especially in, in marriage. And so it was through going to counseling ourselves that, that, that kind of led to her getting uh, education uh, in counseling, getting her master's degree, and then becoming a, an LPC herself, and then a family marriage therapist after that. And so um, her career came out of that struggle that we went through just as a, as a couple. Um, and uh, it, I always encourage you know friends, family members, others to, to always uh, be open to seeking counsel for your own personal development and growth, as well as dealing with family relationships or, you know, children issues or uh, job issues, uh, a professional counselor can really help uh, walk through those issues with you. Right. Well, and I, it's funny how so many of those things are birthed from some of our personal experiences. Absolutely. Um, the church split started because we experienced a church split. I was the pastor of the church. Brian uh, was a deacon there. I've experienced church splits. Um, the church is still healthy and alive, by the way. I just no longer pastor there because uh, my wife and I needed, of course, to I need to support a family and pastoral ministry is not where all the money's at guys. Just so <laughs> if y'all are in it for the money, you're getting in the wrong business. But uh, now I just help out um, and as, as associate kind of over there at frontline. And I assist sometimes a door I'll fill in and go back to yeah. the church where you're a deacon still, but uh, the church split started off from that. And so Teriology 101 uh, started with some of your passion projects is my understanding as well. Right. So, yeah. And well, there was a church split in the background of all of that too. Um, uh, when I, when I became a Calvinist back at the age of about 19 uh, there at college, um, I was introduced to Calvinism at that time and became a full-fledged five-point Calvinist, a little bit of a caged age kind of Calvinist, you might say, because I wanted everyone else to know about uh, the, the newfound belief that I'd come to, to, to love, uh, my, my so-called doctrines of grace. And when I went back home to my home church in Wiley, Texas, uh, it happened to be going through a split over the doctrines of Calvinism. There was a, a few uh, families in the church 
that had a particular class they were teaching and they were teaching Calvinistic doctrine and it became controversial and the pastor actually came out and began to preach sermons against Calvinism. Uh, and eventually, uh, long story short, that the, those families, four or five, six families bonded together and kind of took a group and split off of that home church. And I and my brother's family were a part of that as Calvinists at the time, going into that new church and helping to start that new church. And so that was one of the reasons that this became such a heart issue for me, because you can imagine uh, my, my parents are not Calvinists and they were a part of that church too, and ended up having to go to another place to kind of get away from the uh, the controversy of it all. And so you can imagine how much emotion was uh, put into all of that. And uh, that that's probably one of the reasons that I, I've spent so much time studying the doctrines because it did affect me so much early in life and, and how much it affected me coming into Calvinism. Then you can imagine how much more so that might affect me coming back out of it after going through all of that. So I guess you could say it kind of started with a church split to some degree. Sounds about right, because I know that Calvinism and uh, traditionalism and Molinism, all these different isms have caused a lot of controversy in churches, right? There's always different thought. And then uh, that was actually one of the things that I think was a little uh, unique. And actually, my father-in-law was so concerned because my father-in-law is not a Calvinist. And uh, what's funny is that then he found out one of our uh, deacons at the church was uh, was Calvinist. And he was like, what? How does that work? I'm like, well, we just <laughs> choose to be united in Jesus Christ. And when I decide to talk about Romans nine or whatever, he has basically been like, well, I, I disagree, but I'm not going to sit there and cause a church split over it. So there's a sense of maturity a little bit there, I think as well. So anyway, so you used to be a Calvinist. Now I am curious because I have never been a Calvinist uh, because I'm part of the RFP network. A lot of my friends have jumped ship from independent fundamental Baptist, hardcore King James only hellfire brimstone, amen uh, to uh being reformed now. And so I started studying reformed theology and there were so many things that I could not get past. Now, Brian, you could probably speak to this a little bit more. You were raised Calvinist. Yeah, right? I was raised Calvinist. And, you know, it was actually through some, uh, when I, my wife and I were getting ready to get married, we were like, which way are we going to go? Cause she was a Baptist. Um, and I was Calvinist. And so we started talking to each other's pastors and like, let's, let's figure this out. And it was actually some of the infant baptism stuff is what really was the first thread that started pulling me away from the church I grew up in. And, and I guess there was a time where I, we, we just tried some Baptist stuff, but it wasn't until maybe the last seven or eight years that I was very not Calvinist. And I kind of shed some of those, those early beliefs that I had growing up. And just so we're clear on how Calvinist you were, you went to Calvin church, graduated from Calvin college, and your grandfather was the first person to take all of John Kellen's Latin works and put it into one volume, right? Yep. <laughs> so, but, and but all my not family's a, but, Calvinist. <laughs> but you're not. But you're not a Calvinist now. Not anymore. Nope. Well, then you must not have ever been a Calvinist, <laughs> <laughs> or truly have understood Calvinism. That's always. Yeah, right. That's I even always made the... <laughs> profession of faith in the Calvinist Church. So I, I'll bring it up sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm debating a Calvinist. Like, well, according to you, I was elect at that point in time, and now I can't not be elect. So. I'm in the club, even if I disagree with it now. <laughs> so that's, it makes it a lot of fun there. So yeah, it's funny because I, you and I definitely, I never was, you were, you no longer are, I'm still not. So for us, that's a big deal. But so let me ask you, since you were 19, when you, when you became that and you, you espoused it, how long were you a Calvinist, by the way? About, about 10 years. About 10 years. Okay. So a good minute, about a decade. So what yeah. was the allure first off? Like, cause for me, I instantly saw logical contradictions and that I could not get past. Uh, so what were, what were some of the things for you that brought you into it first off? Well, I was given a book by John MacArthur 
called Ashamed of the Gospel. Um, and I was actually on the mission field in, in Belarus, Russia, uh, at the time at age 19. And I was reading this book and Ashamed of the Gospel, if you've never read that book before. It's, it's written by MacArthur, really confronting pragmatism within the church this whole seeker-sensitive kind of movement and really trying to show that the church needs to rely upon the power of the gospel, not on entertaining the, the seekers. And, and it's really just arguing that, you know, pragmatism isn't necessarily biblical. In other words, just because it works doesn't make it right. So just because you can grow a huge church by, you know, putting a tank on the stage or preaching from the top of a roof or doing bungee jumping while you're preaching or whatever it is, that whatever, <laughs> whatever uh, you know, thing that you can do to draw a crowd, it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's healthy for the church because it's teaching the church to rely upon things other than the power of the gospel, which, by the way, I I've still very much resonate with that kind of teaching um, and agree with MacArthur very much even to this day about things like that. But in that um, particular book, he also introduces just the concept of Calvinism and what it is uh, in just one of the chapters. And it just got me thinking. I just never had heard of it before. And I, I didn't know what this was talking about. And he said, you know, he chose you and takes me to, you know, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and Ephesians chapter one and talking about he, before the world even began, he chose you. And so I was just like this feeling of, wow, he chose me, you know, oh, he, he like, he picked me out. The reason I believe in him is because he picked me. And so it was just kind of this overwhelming feeling of, wow, why didn't I know this before? Why didn't, why didn't anybody at my church ever say this, like you were, you were picked before the foundation of the world to be a Christian. And, and it, to be honest with you, I know, I never really thought about the people who weren't chosen. It wasn't like, it, it wasn't like I was overwhelmed by what about those who aren't chosen? That's not fair. It was just, it was really more just a focus on the fact that I was and, and that that wasn't taught to me before. And so I, I began to kind of investigate the doctrines a little bit, just trying to figure out what they meant and what they were. And I wasn't trained in logic by any means. And so I wasn't able to pick out logical fallacies or problems like that. I, I wasn't well versed enough in the text to know how else to take Ephesians 1 or John or any of the other proof texts that were being used. And so I, I, I pretty much just took the, the author's word for it when he told me what it meant. And, and it seemed insurmountable. It seemed like it was really obvious that must be what the Bible's teaching. And then when I got back home, I, there was a mentor who gave me that book, who was a Calvinist, uh, who is still a very good friend of mine, by the way. And uh, he, he gave me another book called Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul, the, the book you mentioned earlier that Geisler actually wrote in response to. Um, but that book is uh, just a small book. It's even smaller than mine. And I, I read it in one, one sitting uh, there in college and then uh, turned around and read it again almost immediately, just because I was just, just marking up the pages and I've still got it in my bookshelf here, just writing little notes in the side. And, and by the time I got done reading that book, I was a full-fledged five-point Calvinist and, um, and became very uh, insistent on helping other people to understand these doctrines as well and led several of my closest friends into uh, understanding uh, Calvinism and asked John Calvin into their heart and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, so, I, I mean, I, I, they're at college at Hardin-Simmons. It's a Bible school, so a lot of theology geeks and theology nerds and um, anytime I had a chance to bring up Calvinism or to bring up, uh, you know, the doctrines of grace as I saw them into uh, the class or ask questions about it. I mean, I was, I was annoying. I was annoying as a Calvinist, I'm sure, to all the professors <laughs> because uh, I, I just come to believe it was true. And I really thought the Bible taught it. And that's what I what, wanted people to know what the truth was. So 
Ah, okay. So that's, that's interesting. So um, for, yeah, I guess I, it was weird. Cause I guess I was never trained in logic, but for me, I never, it, it just was like, ah, but what about that? What about that? Um, I don't know. Just funny how we all think differently and it works. Uh, so you, so you were Calvinist for like 10 years and um, it might be best to real quick for those, some of our listeners are not like complete theology nerds. Uh, would you be able to quickly give a summary of Calvinism? Of course, sure. steel, steel man at real fast for our listeners who might not know. I yeah. should have started with that. I apologize. Yeah. I mean, t- the, t- the tulip is usually the acrostic everybody goes to, to kind of explain it. It's just a, an acronym that to helps people to remember what the major five points of Calvinism typically are. Um, T stands for total depravity, which is not just that people are depraved, we all can believe that, but it's that people are born because of their depravity in such a condition that they would never want to receive the gospel. And so even when the law explains your lost condition and the gospel calls you to repentance, you will always say no to it because of uh, your morality from birth, your moral nature from birth is is fallen and dead and corrupt so much so that even the gospel itself sent by God inspired by the Holy Spirit isn't sufficient to lead you to faith um, unless you were chosen and that's what unconditional election the U of tulip stands for so before the foundation of the world God chose certain individuals the elect we don't know why he chose one person over another it's within the secret counsel of his will um, that he chose some people. He doesn't foresee good within them. He doesn't even look to see in the future, so to speak, or know in the future whether somebody's going to have faith or not. It has nothing to do with the person whatsoever. It's a unilateral choice before the foundation of the world for certain people. And those are the elect. And those elect people are the people he's going to send Jesus to die for. And that's the L of limited atonement. And so Jesus came to die not for the sins of the world, but for the sins of his elect and his elect alone. And then he irresistibly graces them, which is the eye of tulip. And irresistible grace is uh, sometimes referred to as effectual calling or regeneration, that those he has picked from before the foundation of the world, he gives them a new heart, changing their wants. So you're born unable to want the things of God unless he wants you. And if he wants you, then he'll send, he sends Jesus to die for you. And he changes your heart and makes you want him back. And if he does that, then you will want him forever. And that's where perseverance steps in. The P of tulip is that once you are regenerated, once you are uh, born again, you will never leave that if you truly are of God because he's chosen you for that end. And so um, basically it is, it's a form of theistic determinism in the philosophical realm and the philosophical understanding of it. There's the theological side and the philosophical side. On the philosophical side, it's called theistic determinism. God determines whatsoever comes to pass, the, the, the sovereign decree. And if you hear John Piper and others, they'll talk about being a seven point Calvinist. And the first point they often talk about is the, they're called the S, the sovereignty of God. And what they mean by sovereignty is not just that God rules, but that God ultimately is the one who brings everything to pass. Everything that happens is in accordance with what he has sovereignly and unchangeably decreed from before the foundation of the world, which is, like I said, just a form of theistic determinism. Um, and so that that is Calvinism qua Calvinism. In other words, the way John Calvin taught it, Cal, Calvin was an, undoubtedly a, a theistic determinist as well. Um, and his book on predestination pretty much affirms the, the same things you'll hear from Jonathan Edwards uh, and John Piper, who was probably the most, uh, you know, one of the most, if, if not the most uh, uh, influential Calvinist in the United States and the world today. Um, and, and he also affirms theistic determinism as, as kind of a philosophical underpinning of what Calvinism teaches and believes. 
Gotcha. So I really appreciate it. Wow. That was the most succinct explanation to walk through. I was over here like, oh, good. <laughs> he was like, and that uh, leads us to the you. I'm like, dang, that was so seamless. You had me along for the ride. I even know it. Well, and was, and was we've got a, it. we've got a guy that was raised in the Calvinist churches all his life. Was I, was I fair, uh, Brian, yes. you think it was okay? All right. Definitely. Good. Definitely. Yes. So, uh, all right. So now that our listeners who don't know, understand what Calvinism is, and I appreciate you steel manning it and talk about the Sierra Council of his will, things like that. Um, so now the next part is, is so you got out of Calvinism. Now, what do you, what led you out of it? What was the thing? Cause I feel like if, after you've affirmed something for 10 years, when it shifts, it's gotta be some sort of Achilles hail moment. Was it, was it one of those? It was really a long, it was kind of a long-term process, to be honest. Um, and it, it started with me reading a book by A.W. Tozer um, on, on holiness. And uh, I read A.W. Tozer thinking he was a Calvinist because uh, Piper quoted from him very regularly because he, like MacArthur, kind of stood against the pragmatism of the, the church becoming like the world. He, he, he spoke out about that a lot in his day. And so he's a hero of a lot of Calvinists because anybody who's smart and knows their Bible, you know, the Calvinists like to adopt them as a part of their family, even though they don't agree with them theologically. And, uh, and so Tozer, C.S. Lewis is another person that had a huge influence on me and his writings. I love C.S. Lewis's work. Um, and, and once I learned that both of those men denied, not just, not just um, you know, just weren't Calvinists because they weren't exposed to it or whatever, they actually had sermons speaking out against Calvinism. They <laughs> they they both did not like Calvinist and or Calvinism in a sense, um, and so once I realized that I couldn't understand why smart, godly, you know, serious people bec- would 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 deny Calvinism because it's, in my mind I had I'd created this kind of this dichotomy in my brain that the 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 seeker sensitive kind of crowd over here Rick Warren Bill Hybels maybe the Osteen family, that kind of a group where the big old churches that are really, really focusing upon the positive side of everything to do with the gospel, not talking a lot about wrath and talking a lot about the, 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 the things that won't grow a church, you know, but talking about the fun things. Um, and you got that side over here and they're mostly not Calvinistic. And then you've got over here, you know, R.C. Sproul and MacArthur and, you know, Paul Washer. And, and I, I mean, Paul Washer just... <laughs> you know, just, you know, really calling people to repentance like a prophet would do, you know, like that sounds more like Bible to me than these guys over here, you know? And so I thought that this pendulum kind of swing kind of a, I was raised in a seeker sensitive kind of focus and was a part of a lot of the ministries and church stuff that was having a lot of the, the, the entertainment kind of a focus. And it was almost like the only thing that was an alternative to that was what I was seeing from the Calvinist side. Um, and, and so I, I just adopted that whole worldview and kind of swung over to that side. But once I began to realize that wasn't really the dichotomy, that there's actually other very robust, very deep thinking theologians and preachers who don't adopt Calvinism, that that at least just gave me kind of that mindset to go, oh, okay, so that's not the, that's not the dilemma here. There are smart people who aren't pragmatists, who aren't just about being, you know, topical and everything like that and seeker sensitive but who are really serious scholars in the scripture who actually disagree with Calvinism, I want to know why. And I had, I had debated back when I was in high school and college, and one of the things they drill into you when you debate is that you have to take on both sides of the issue. 
In other words, you, you would show up to class and you wouldn't know whether you were on the affirmative or the negative in my class. You had to be ready to debate both sides equally well in order to pass the course. And so they, tr- they just drilled within you knowing both sides really well. And I, and I, and it just kind of dawned on me, you know, I'd never really, uh, I'd never really unpacked or even studied the other side of Calvinism. I didn't know what the opponents really believed. I'd heard of Arminianism, of course, but what I'd been told about Arminians was only told to me by what Calvinists said about them. And they're not always the, the nicest people when, it, when describing <laughs> Arminians. Uh, and they're certainly not accurate. Uh, I, I learned very quickly because I had been taught that the only real alternative to the Calvinistic interpretation of Romans 9 and Romans 8 and 9 and, and Ephesians 1 was, you know, this, this concept of an idea of God looking through the quarters of time and trying to see into the future to see who's going to, to do the right thing and earn their salvation. And that person, he's going to choose that person based upon how much better they are than everybody else. And even Matt Chandler, who is a friend of mine, I went to college with Matt, but he even has a sermon where he describes Arminians as believing that God gets into a DeLorean, a time travel machine. He goes into the future to foresee who's going to believe in him. And those are the ones he elects, you know, just these caricatures of Arminians to make them sound as, as silly as they possibly can. And, and once I, once I really began to read Arminius and read other leading scholars from the non-Calvinistic perspective, I began to realize these are not dummies. Um, in fact, some of the arguments they're making seem to make a lot more sense within the whole of scripture than what my Calvinist friends are saying. And, and I remember coming across several arguments and several issues uh, that, that I didn't know how to answer as a young Calvinist. And I, I was close to 30 at the time, but I still, I mean, wasn't, wasn't what well-trained, you know, robust thinker at the time by any means. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I didn't know how to answer the argument. So I thought, well, I don't know how to answer them, but I'm sure R.C. Sproul would. I'm sure Piper could answer these questions. I just don't know how because I just don't know Calvinism well enough. And so I would start investigating the answers to those hard questions. And I, time after time after time again, I found the Calvinist answers lacking. They didn't seem to make sense. They didn't seem to comport with Scripture. And and just slowly, kind of brick by brick, I began to kind of deconstruct Calvinism in my own mind to the point where eventually I just go, I, I can't call myself a Calvinist anymore. Um, and and even, even for several years after leaving behind Calvinism, there were still little bits of it and pieces of it in my mind here and there. You know what I mean? It's just like I, I still thought about this particular passage in a, in a certain way, and I didn't know how to interpret this. And so it was, it was years of kind of walking through these things and debating it with my friends and talking through it and online chats and then, you know, coffee houses with my buddies and stuff like that. And just studying it, just reading the sources for myself, that I, I really began began to adopt what I believe today and what I hold to today. But it, it was not a just a quick little overnight thing. It, it took a long time to kind of really study the the issues and uh, become firmly convinced that Calvinism is just not what the Bible's teaching. Agreed. Uh, and so, uh, and you hold a position that is called traditionalism, right? That's that's. I'm not sure if you named it that or dubbed it that or who did, but that's. No, um, yeah, the traditional Southern Baptist is where that that term traditionalist came from, and that predates me uh, for quite some time. I, I'm not sure who all first started using those terms, um, but it's been you know with the last several decades that 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 term of traditional Southern Baptist, because you know Southern Baptist only began what in the 1840s, and so that that's relatively new with regard to just Christian history. But what, what the traditionalists were meaning were, were they were simply saying that over the last hundred years or so, 
when Southern Baptists became the largest Protestant denomination in the world, it was under not a Calvinistic soteriology. It was under a whosoever will, anyone and everyone can be saved kind of soteriology. And they were wanting to get back to that. They were wanting to go back to the tradition of what Southern Baptists believe because the Founders Ministry and all of these Calvinists, these Piperites, you might call them these John Piper fans, were rising up in Southern Baptist world and, and kind of overtaking the seminaries. And, and a lot of the, the traditionalists, the, the, the non-Calvinistic Southern Baptists were saying, wait, let's go back to the tradition of what, we, what we've been. And of course, the Founders Ministry are going, no, no, the very beginning of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention were Calvinists, and we want to go back to our roots, you know, and well, yeah, back then when it was a fledgling little small group of pastors, yeah, they were uh, more Calvinistic, but it, Calvinism was long gone by the time that the Southern Baptist Convention blew up into the huge denomination that we know of it as today. And so anyway, there's this back and forth over that. So I, I actually, the, the, the term that I coined was a term called provisionism because um, one, a lot of people aren't Southern Baptist who listen to my program and don't relate to the Southern Baptist tradition whatsoever. And plus it seemed to upset Calvinists for us to call it traditional Southern Baptist whenever they believe that they have the tradition within their, their line of thinking. Uh, so I just said, well, let's just focus on God's provision because that, that's what matters here. I, I'm not trying to create another ism, though that you know that could be what results. I, I'm, I'm just simply saying, what, what has God done? He provides. He provides. It's what he does. Yes, we're dead in sins, but he provides for dead sinners. Yes, we're in bondage to sin, but he provides for those who are in bondage. There's nobody that God hasn't provided for. No one can go to hell and say, I died and went to hell because God didn't love me. God didn't provide for me. Jesus didn't atone for me. Nobody can say that. Provisionists say that God provides. He doesn't pass by the other side of the road like the Levite or uh, the, the priest and the Good Samaritan story. He stops to help his enemies. He loves his enemies, just like Jesus commanded us to love our enemies. He loves his enemies, and he provides for his enemies. And therefore, if anyone perishes, they perish not for a want or a lack of atonement, they perish because they refuse to love the truth, as Paul said. They refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. Um, and so that that's the focus of what we say when we call ourselves provisionists, that God provides for dead, lost, enslaved sinners, and he provides sufficiently for everyone so anyone and everyone can be saved. Right. So especially with the whosoever will theology. So that's interesting. And then, of course, the provisionist perspective came out. And yeah. There's yeah. now a bunch of people who do say that they are provisionists or, you know, where they bring right. provisionism. So, uh, so one of the things with this then, um, so uh, we've kind of gone through defining terms, discuss a lot of these things. Now, some of the things I wanted to talk about was what do you think, because one of the things I think of instantly when I hear of limited atonement, unconditional election, like, you know, I've saved you by no whatever merit of your own. And also it's limited. So I've picked different people is the instant verse that came to mind when I was studying it was is the, all the talk about not showing partiality. I don't know how we can say that all our sin is equal. We're all equally sinners and condemnable before God. And that, but that God has to choose us in order to be saved because we will never do it in our depraved nature. And yet God somehow gets away with not being accused of partiality, if that makes sense. So yeah. that was one of the big things for me that I, I knew I could not, I was like, that does not make sense. Not including all the parts of it. You know, I desire that no man shall perish, but that all shall come to repentance, all that talk. But I was, that was one of the things for me. I was like, this seems like this shows partiality. 
so what were some of the things, so what would you say are some of the big things that Calvinists get wrong? Just some of the big ones, like, cause I know Romans nine, you've discussed, you've discussed John six. So what are some of the things? Cause I think Brian, you had mentioned in one of the debates you listened to the flowers of today yeah. was the idea of judicial hardening. So what were some of the things for you that you would say that uh, Calvinists get wrong and can help them understand things maybe a little bit more from our perspective? And maybe as someone who's finding it tempting sure. would find it to go against it. Yeah, I, I think you start with the foundation of the entire systematic, which is the T of the tulip. Even R.C. Sproul says, if you adopt the T of the tulip, it all hangs or falls on this one major doctrine. Truth. And th this, this doctrine is not, well, like I said earlier, it's not just that people are depraved or sinners. We all believe that that people are sinners. No, no one is perfect. All have fallen short. Um, but that's much different than what the Calvinist is actually saying when they talk about total depravity. What the Calvinist is saying when they say total depraved, they're saying that you're absolutely unable to respond positively even to God's call through the gospel to be reconciled from that depraved condition. So there's a big difference between saying you're depraved and saying you're unable to confess your depravity even in light of the law and the gospel. But there's a big difference between those two things. And so a lot of proof texts are out there to prove how depraved we are. But the Calvinists just seem to assume that proving that we're depraved, therefore, equals an incapacity to confess that and trust in the one who's offering to reconcile us from our depravity. And, and that's where I, I probably focus most of my attention on that point, because it is the least... <laughs> It is the the least supported biblically of all of the doctrines that they hold to, um, and and it's the easiest to undermine because it flies against all intuition, um, and and it seems as if and correct me if you think I'm wrong about this, but it seems as if sometimes theologians get into this almost it's almost like this pious competition of who can make mankind sound more sinful. Like, no, my theology makes mankind more sinful than your theology. No, my man, my, my, my mankind on my theology is worse than on yours. That's you try so to true. lift up mankind and make them better. And we're, we're, we're just worms. Oh, you think we're worms? Well, I think we're dirt, you know, and no, we're not, you know, just, it's just the, almost so true. this competition of how bad you can make man out to be. And it, obviously the authority is our scripture, not who can make man out as bad as they possibly can. Whatever scripture says is, is our authority. But I, I just tell Calvinists, I said, if you want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with me, with which of our two systems, Calvinism or provisionism, actually makes man out to be worse than, they, than, than the other, then I, I'll win that competition, hands down, easy. And I can prove it. I can say, okay, which is worse? A man who is born, rejected by his maker, unloved by his God, who is not provided salvation, is not loved or provided for. Jesus did not die for him. He was born in a condition where he could not do anything but hate God and reject God. And that person who stands against a God who does not love him and has rejected him from the foundation of the world actually created him for damnation versus the guy over here, just be objective, regardless of what you hold to. This man over here was actually born loved by his maker, created in the image of God. God longs for him and desires for his salvation, sends Jesus to die for him, and genuinely holds out of his hands, wanting him to come to repentance and faith so as to be reconciled. And he turns up his nose at God and walks away. Which one is objectively worse? And Calvinists, if they're <laughs> honest, they have to say the second one's worse. Obviously, the person who rejects a God who first rejects them is not as bad as a person who rejects a God who loves and provides. 
that's just intuitive. It's not even, it's completely objective person would say, obviously, and, and you can, you can, I could paint a thousand different uh, analogies of, of, you know, a, a parent who loves the child and, and cares for the child and provides food and clothing for the child and the child rebels against that parent versus a child who rebels against a, a parent who's abusive and mean and angry and hateful, which, which child is worse for his rebellion? I mean, it's just, it's obvious which child is worse for their rebellion. And that's why I would say, okay, guys, if you want to get into a competition with me over how bad sinners are or how blameworthy sinners are, I'd be glad to have that debate any day of the week and twice on <laughs> Sunday, because that is absolutely indefensible. And whenever you hold to a doctrine of total depravity, what you're ultimately saying is people are sinners because God decreed for them to be sinners from birth, and they can't do otherwise. They can't, re they can't receive the gospel. And that's something that we have to stand up against because men are blameworthy for their sin and for their rejection of the gospel. That can't be put back onto God. And that's what we have to stand up against, in my opinion. I totally agree. You took the words out of my mouth. And that's actually one of the things people are like, well, why are you so hostile toward it? I'm like, because when you really take it back, because they will still say, like, they'll quote the Westminster Confession or whatever that goes, well, no, see, mankind is still responsible. I'm like, you can't say mankind is still responsible, though, if you say that God can save you and change your will, but he just chooses not to, but he's going to do to this guy. Why? Because secret counsel of his will. Yeah, it becomes well, a blank check for sin too. You're like, well, I guess, I guess I'm not chosen, so I guess I can't be regenerated. So I guess I will just follow every evil desire of my heart. Oh well. What? Which you 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 know, people may laugh at something like that, or or smirk at something like that if they're on the Calvinist side. But there are actually people like Derek Webb, who was a former lead leading Calvinist, who has become an atheist now and actually does just that. He's just, he's, he has a song in his song. Maybe this is all real and I'm not chosen. And, and he talks about, well, I'm like Lazarus in the grave. If God wants to wake me up, I want to be a part of it. He says, I, if, if God is real and this salvation thing is real, then I want to be elect. It, it, choose me, God, bring me out. But right now I don't believe it. And so I'm going to keep living in my lifestyle and doing what I want to do because it's ultimately he's put the responsibility to believe and to trust in God onto God and saying, God, if you want me to believe in you, you better make me believe in you because that's not really my responsibility anyway, because he yeah. adopted the Calvinistic worldview. Which is exactly what Matt Dillahunty does as well. He says all the time that, well, I don't know what would convince me, but I know, I think, know that if God is real, that he would know what would convince me. So God should do that. So God must convince me as opposed right. to no, it is your job to be convinced and put faith. Uh, so what it does is, well, it, it's your job not to suppress the truth. I mean, right. the truth is made obviously known. And, and, and if you continue to suppress it and push down truth of what you know between right and wrong, that's your doing. That's not God's. And so right. when people yeah. truth, suppress truth, we can't, we can't say, well, it's because of the way they were born. They were just born that way and they couldn't help it because their wanter was broken, as R.C. Sproul put it. You know, you're born with your wanter broken, where you always want uh, to reject the things of God until he changes your wanter, I, through irresistible grace. And if he changes your wanter, then you'll certainly want him. That's just determinism, and it leads. It can lead to a fatalistic way of thinking, like we see in Derek Webb and others, who just kind of throw up their hands and go, "Well, I guess I'll just live the way I want to live until God changes my heart and makes me believe." Because otherwise, you know, why bother? 
And one of the things that is, is why it's so apparently obvious is one when you say that, well, mankind can't even recognize the sinful nature. That's emphatically false. You could read atheist philosophers all throughout the ages that recognize how evil man is, how wicked man is. I mean, that's kind of, uh, Nietzsche talks a little bit about that. And eventually he really accepts nihilism. Uh, uh, this happens a lot where it's like, well, I've talked to atheists and agnostics before who'll be like, yeah, but people are just horrible. In fact, that's one of the well, biggest objections to God, right? Well, get mankind's so evil. If God loved us, he would do yeah. something about it. Well, in defense of, of Calvinist on that point, and Calvinism is not a monolithic group. There are different kinds of Calvinists, right. obviously. But in, in defense of what I think some Calvinists would say to that is to say, yes, they can they can recognize that they're sinners. They can recognize that they're they're corrupt and evil and all those kinds of things. But they could never come to a point where they humbly confess it and trust in the one who's offering them freedom. That that's what they cannot do. They could they could recognize in a in a cognitive way, hey, people are are jerks or people are evil or people are corrupt. They can recognize that, but they can't ever humbly confess their own evil when they recognize it and trust in Christ, not unless they were unconditionally elected and irresistibly graced. Which again, still you were we were about to say something. Yeah, I just wanted the on the whole total depravity thing and and being to the point where you can't you can't even accept the gospels for yourself. You have to be regenerated first. Uh, the debate I listened to today that I thought was fantastic. It was with Pastor Jill Webin. Um, you made the point of Second Colossians or Colossians two twelve, which is talking about that it is through faith that we are made alive, and it right. isn't that that regeneration is preceding faith because it's through faith that we are being born again. And I thought that was just a fantastic point. And in that debate, I highly recommend people to go watch because. Um, your opponent didn't really answer that question. He just kind of said, well, there's other verses that, that I would go to instead. And I thought those, yeah. he really didn't have a good answer. And um, I don't know, you want to expound on that a little bit? Yeah. And what's even more interesting about that, if you follow up, I, uh, Joel actually brings that exchange up with Je Dr. James White in another, in another video. And he brings up my debate and he and he talks about how difficult it is to debate. And he's right. Cross-examination is, is not easy. Yeah. Taking on your feet that quickly and everything. And he brings up that question. He says, I got stumped. And he said, I, I, I really didn't know what to say here. And he told Dr. White that question about Colossians 2, 12. And you can read, you can listen to it for yourself. But I did a video uh, responding to that. And, I, and be perfectly frank, and I know that sounds biased for me, but James White doesn't do much better job answering that passage and certainly doesn't address uh, what it means to be raised uh, through faith, because obviously regeneration uh, is, is uh, tantamount to being raised. I mean, that's what being born again is. So if you're raised, born again through faith, faith is the instrumental means by which we're raised. But that's not the only passage that teaches us this. You also got John 20, 31, these things, speaking of the gospel, these things were written so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's, it's by believing that we have life, not the other way around. Regeneration is getting new life. You're not, give it, you're not getting new life so as to believe. You're believing so as to be given new life. And so when Calvinists talk about, hey, you're dead, you're dead. And I'll say, yes, we are. So what does a dead man need to do? He needs to believe so as to be given new life. <laughs> dead doesn't mean the incapacity to, to respond or walk or move. Obviously, people can still respond and walk and move and, and talk to God and listen to God and hear his revelation. Well, what, what does a dead man, one who's spiritually separated from God need to do? 
He needs to come home. Like the prodigal son said, he was dead, now he's alive. He was lost, now he's found. He needs to come home and reunite with his father. That's exactly what the spiritually dead man needs to do. He needs to believe, reunite with the father. It's what Jesus said in John 5.40 when he says, um, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. What's the order for Jesus? You come to him in order to have life. He should have said, if Calvinism was true, he should have said, well, I have refused to give you life so that you would certainly come to me because that's what Calvinism entails, is that God gives certain people new life, and they will certainly come to Jesus and because of the new life that he gives them. But the Bible never puts it in that order. The Calvinistic order salutis, the order of salvation, puts the cart before the horse by saying, ultimately, new life or being raised up precedes faith, and that's never founded in the pages of Scripture as far as I can tell. Right, and in, the, in Acts chapter 17, literally says that they might seek God and perhaps find their way, to, feel their way towards him. And in reality, he is not far from each of us. It is right. outright. That's one of my favorite parts to bring up when they're like, well, we can't seek God. I'm like, then why is it that the apostles are saying that we can? And then the other thing is I was reading Clement the other day and Clement straight up says that salvation has always been by faith. I read a lot of Jewish literature and it's funny because it's always been, you believe and you are saved. It's never been God regenerates you. Then that doesn't happen until much later until the reformation where we see that doctrine really crop up. Um, and I know people can say, well, is there seeds of it here and there and here and there, but not really. I, I a lot of the things I've seen people say it crops up. I read it and go, that's not that you're kind of pre-assuming uh your presuppositions into it but um so yeah uh, i totally agree with that so yeah regeneration can't precede faith uh i i just that whole idea is literally faith creates the regeneration that's what saves you right that gives you the new nature um so the other thing is, is so what about this the, can you explain the concept perhaps of judicial hardening a little bit because i think that helps sure. Because one of the parts that you had brought up and you kind of hinted at it there was you come to him and he gives you a new life, right? That's why else would it, there be parts where Jesus goes, no, I speak in parables because if I didn't, they would repent, right? Right. Or, and which it seems to indicate that they have an ability to, right? That, that, right so right. I'd love to talk for you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And this is one of the points that really was kind of stuck in my crawl, so to speak, when I was a Calvinist trying to figure out when I would read Mark 4, Matthew 13, about why do you speak to them in parables? Well, these things have been given to you, but to those on the outside, I speak to them in parables, lest they see, hear, understand, and turn, and I would heal them. And I remember thinking to myself, well, even if you didn't speak in parables, they're not elect, Jesus. And if they're not elect, then they're not regenerate, Jesus. And therefore, you don't need to use parables. You can just tell them plainly exactly what you're saying. And they might believe and they couldn't believe and be saved unless you regenerate them first. So it, it didn't make sense. It didn't stick with me well. And, and I couldn't figure out how to answer the question. That was one of the things that I thought maybe R.C. Sproul or somebody other Calvinist would be able to answer for me. And I've always found their, their, their answers to be sound like circular and it didn't logically match up or make any sense to me. Um, but it, it helps to understand what, what the way the word is used in scripture, hardening um, to, to harden means to become calloused or, uh, to be to become uh, you know more and more convinced in in your unbelief, um, and so a person's not born in that condition. You know that's why Jesus can pull up a random child of the audience and say, "You must become humble like this child to enter the kingdom of heaven." <laughs> What's the difference between an eight-year-old and an eighty-year-old on Calvinism? Either you're regenerate or you're not. Um, it doesn't matter how old you are. It also, by the way, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. Why does he say it's difficult for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven? 
why why would age or wealth have anything to do it? Either you're chosen or you're not. Either you're elected before the foundation order or you're not. And either you're regenerate or you're not. It, it, wealth and age wouldn't make any difference. But on provisionism, those do make a difference because a child is more moldable. He's more teachable. He's able to, to listen and learn because he hasn't grown hardened and callous in his ways. A wealthy person's more likely to trust in his own wealth and his own provisions versus trusting in the provisions of God. And so we can see why that would affect the will of man and possibly in a negative way, if, per, if a person continues to reject the things of God throughout his life, he can grow hardened. Well, in, a, in essence, on Calvinism, you're already born hardened. You're born unable to see, unable to hear spiritually, at least. You're, un, you're unable to turn because of the nature you're born with. And, and what we're saying is, no, that's not a nature you're born with. That's a nature you can grow into if you ignore the voice of God, just like Hebrews warns. When you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. That's a condition you can grow into. And if you grow into that condition and you grow stubborn against the things of God and you continue to reject him and continue to reject him and continue to reject him, well, the Bible says that God won't contend with man forever. And Romans 1 talks about how he will give them over to their lust, um, give them over to their fleshly desires. Uh, in other words, cut them off. And this is sometimes referred to as judicial hardening. Now, what does that mean? Well, judicial is an act of a judge. Hardening literally means, in the original language, to strengthen one in their resolve. So the judge, as an act of a judge, in other words, he's not doing this arbitrarily, he's not doing this just for no apparent reason, he's actually bringing judgment upon someone who is already rebellious, already stubborn, already cut off from God because of his own choices, free choices to, to, to uh, reject the things of God. And as a judge, he brings condemnation on that person by cutting the light away from them, taking the light from them. If you're, you're, you're faithful with a little, he'll bring you more. But if you're unfaithful with a little, he'll take that little away from you, according to the scripture. And so if you continue to reject the light, then he has within his uh, ability, uh, power and sovereignty as his right as ruler, he can say, okay, you don't want to respond to the light. I'm just going to take the light from you, and I'm going to take it to these people over here, which is exactly what we see happening in the New Testament times with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were self-righteous. They didn't think they needed a physician. They thought they were the physician. They were old wineskins that couldn't take the new wine. They had grown hardened and callous by their own choosing, and now God was cutting them off, judicially blinding them in their rebellion so as to bring about good through their rebellious actions. So they're the ones who cry out, crucify him, which is a part of God's divine plan. So God is using them in their rebellion, blinding them from the truth of who their Messiah is to bring about the Passover, which beautifully is, is uh, illustrated and foreshadowed for us back with Pharaoh. Just in the same way, Pharaoh was a hardened, self-righteous, uh, pompous ruler who hated God. He was already in that condition. God didn't have to decree him to be that way. God didn't have to make him that way by any kind of sovereign, decreative means. Okay, He was just that way by his own choosing. He was stubborn by his own choosing. And God chooses to harden or blind him from the truth that the parables revealed. Why? So as to demonstrate the power of God over all the false gods of Egypt. And so God was able to bring about a good through the evil of man named Pharaoh. So in order to bring about the first Passover, God hardens Pharaoh. And in order to bring about the second Passover, ironically, a turn of events, God hardens the nation that he rescued from uh, Pharaoh in the first place. He hardens yeah. the nation of Israel in order to bring about the second Passover. 
And it's important to note that Pharaoh was hardened first and then God continues to harden him. So it reflects that very nature where we, uh, why would God even have to harden anybody if they didn't have the ability to, right? And it right. goes again into the whole, well, no, you've made your, it's kind of that idea of you dug your grave. Now you're going to lay in it here for a minute. Um, right. And it's just, okay, great. And by your own choosing, you got here. Uh, and so I, the other thing um, that I wanted to have you address was what is the I, idea of when he says it's not by the will of man, because that's what people bring up. It's not by the will of man, but of him who sent me. So would you be able to flesh that a little bit? Because people will talk about, oh, well, it's not by the will of man. So therefore, it's not your free will. Um, and I think it's a category error, but I'll let you go ahead and explain. Yeah. Are you talking about the passage out of Romans 9? Um, not those who will and run, but the, uh, on God who has mercy. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you've got to remember what, what, what the dichotomy in Paul's mind for the Calvinist is monergism versus synergism or Calvinism versus Arminianism. Um, and so he's, they think he's talking about the elect, those chosen before the foundation of the world to be effectually saved versus the reprobate, those chosen to be damned and hardened like Pharaoh. And that's the, that's the mindset that you have when coming into Romans 9, then it looks like that's what it's talking about. But that's not the dichotomy in Paul's mind. Paul's talking about faith versus works. And, and therefore, when he's talking about those who will and run after the things of the law, it takes a lot of willpower to fulfill the 635 commandments of the Jewish laws. I mean, it takes a lot of running and willing. Um, and, and he's saying, no, salvation is not depending upon your own righteousness, but on the righteousness of God the one who calls both Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. So salvation is based upon his choice. He chooses to establish covenant with whomever he wants to. And if he wants to establish covenant with a barbarian prostitute who's never kept the law in the day of her life, and he does so through faith, then who are you to question the sovereign? He can do whatever he wants. That's what Paul is addressing. And so, and how I know that, you go on reading and the very end of the chapter, verse 30 and following, he actually says, what shall we say to these things? So he's giving his own commentary of Romans 9, and he says, the Jews who have strived after the law, they've ran after the law, they've willed, they've run and, and willed and strived after the law, they have not attained this righteousness. But the Jews who are not striving and running after the law have attained it. Why? Because they believed. And so you can't equate faith with the willing and running in Paul's mind, because the willing and running in Paul's mind, at least in that particular passage, seems to pretty clearly be those who are who are striving and willing after their own righteousness versus trusting in the righteousness of another. And so again, it's just it's it's what how, what presuppositions you're approaching the text with will oftentimes lead you to the conclusion. And if you think that Paul is answering a question that he's not really addressing, then you can oftentimes come to a a false answer. And I think that's what Calvinists unfortunately have done with passages like Romans chapter nine. Brian, you've used those last few verses so many times. Oh yeah. I love like Romans nine. I'm like, yeah, the end part is fantastic. Cause it really <laughs> just puts cherry on top. The end just summarizes it. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think too, I don't know if you probably deal with all the time when it seems like every lot of times when I'm talking to Calvinists and we talk about faith and when they, when they have the picture of an idea of, of someone coming to faith upon their own accord, then they equate faith to a work. And even though Paul is very clear in Ephesians 2 that faith is not a work, and I loved, I absolutely loved in your uh, your um, Jill Webbin uh, debate where you gave him a t-shirt at the beginning, and you said, oh, don't boast about that. And I thought that was just a fantastic <laughs> illustration of, of what uh, salvation is. And um, anyways, can you explain a little bit about, you know, how 
how do Calvinists get to the idea of faith being a work? And how, how do you respond to that when they say, oh, that's just you trying to save yourself. And that's, that's your willpower um, being a faith that you need to have instead of being given to you by God. Yeah. And a lot of times Calvinists will, will talk to me about how, well, faith is a gift. Um, and, and instead of fighting with them, because I know what they mean by that, what they, what they should say, if they were actually hitting a point of contention, is they should say, faith is an effectual gift given to the elect alone and not anybody else. That's what they should say, because that would be the actual point of contention. Because I can say faith is a gift insofar as faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. In other words, how do you believe in one whom you've not heard? We do need the, the ability, the faculties to think and know and reason and understand. We need the capacity to, uh, to have knowledge and the revelation of God. We, we, that, that is a gift of God in that sense. Mm-hmm. My next breath is a gift of God. Um, a, a beautiful singer can sing beautiful songs, but just because they've been given that gift doesn't mean they're going to necessarily sing for the glory of God. Um, so to, to say that somebody is given a gift by God isn't the point of contention. The point of contention is, does the one who gives the gift have to give it effectually in order to get credit for giving it or not? Because the Calvinists seem to think that the only way that God can get really all the credit for giving gifts is he, he somehow makes the recipients of that gift effectually use it the way he wants them to. And that's not true in any other walk of life, and surely not intuitive. It had to be something the Scriptures clearly tell us. But the only way God can really get glory and credit for giving gifts is if he somehow effectually causes the recipients to take and use that gift the way it's meant to be used. And and that's where I think Calvinists have just misunderstood what the scriptures are talking about when it talks about God's provisions um, and, and the fact that God provides for a person and they suppress that provision, they suppress that truth. Truth will set you free, but if you suppress it, you will remain in bondage. So he still should get credit for the truth that he provides and the grace that he provides. And, and that, that's, I think, the, one of the most important points to kind of continue to point out to Calvinists is that you're actually the one who's, in a, way, in a way, removing the glory from God because you're actually teaching people that the people who end up in hell weren't provided a means of salvation. What, what are they rejecting? What are they suppressing? They don't have anything to suppress because they're corpse-like dead and they can't see, hear, understand truth, and they certainly weren't atoned for on Calvary. So what do they, what do they have to reject? The only reason they end up in hell is because before they were ever born, God rejected them. And that flies in the face of so much of what we read in the scriptures about God's provision and his love and uh, and what salvation looks like and human responsibility for that matter. Right. And well, and again, it's counterintuitive because I've used this example before and I've not gotten a good response about with it yet um, where I'm like, okay, so you're saying it's a gift and that God gives it to you and that's all there is to it. But, uh, and then, but for you to accept that gift as a work. So let me put it to you this way. If you were homeless and I built you this beautiful mansion from the ground up, I built you this entire mansion and I did all the work. I paid for it all. And I just walk up to you and hand you the key and go, this is yours. And you cannot tell me that if you accept that key, that suddenly you did all the work for that house. Right. That you somehow earned it. Yeah, that you somehow know it's a gift. I'm giving you the ability to have that house. I'm I'm allowing you to accept it. And if you choose to throw the key in my face, then that's your choice. But if you accept it, I would still get the credit for that house. 
right. you merely accepted it. So I find, I find that to be a, a, an interesting thing. So real quick, um, cause there's so many things, I mean, there's so many yeah, facets to Calvinism, <laughs> uh, that it's like, man, they say there's this, the statement. So could you, uh, really quickly, uh, what, when the Bible then says elect, cause people think that means just picked and chosen. What does the Bible right. really mean is the a group of the elect? Okay, well, before I answer that question, let me let me address just that other point that you just made with regard to, you know, the earning or meriting. And, you know, for example, when it says Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, um, if, if belief earned your salvation or merited salvation, then why did Jesus need to die? In other words, Abraham would have just merited his salvation by believing. Well, the, the, the fact of the matter is Abraham still sinned. He fell short of the glory of God. And so he's declared righteous by grace through faith. And so God imputes the righteousness of Christ onto the account of Abraham or, 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 or you know, any, any of the uh, Old Testament saints. He, he's not, they're not earning their salvation by believing. God in his grace is giving them salvation. And he doesn't have to do that. So you don't merit anything. Believing doesn't merit anything. Just like confessing that you can't pay a debt doesn't pay your debt. If it did, try that with your credit card company. Just call them up and say, <laughs> I confess, I cannot, I cannot pay my own debt. Therefore, you have to uh, you know, get rid of my debt for me now because I confess. Listen, confessing that you have a debt that you cannot pay is worthless. It, it's a filthy rag. Faith, faith in God is a filthy rag apart from the atoning work of Christ. And he doesn't have to provide that for those who believe and trust in him. He chooses to do so graciously. And anyone can do that. And therefore, it's not an elitist group. Anyone can be a part of this family. Um, and so anybody can be a part of the elect body, which goes to your second question. What does it mean to be elect? Well, Christ is the elect one. I didn't exist eternally in time past. Christ did. He's the eternal, he's the eternally existent one. And he is the elect one. And therefore, if you believe in federal headship or the concept and idea that uh, the first Adam and then there's the second Adam, uh, okay, well, how do we get under the second Adam? How do we get under Christ? How do we get in uh, in his provision, if you will? Uh, in Christ is a, is a term that Paul uses uh, hundreds of times throughout uh, the New Testament. How do I get into to be in Christ? Well, the Bible says through faith. You put your, your faith in him and you will come under his headship, under his provision. Uh, just like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13 says, it's when you believe that you're marked in him. So you're not marked in him before the foundation of the world, or you're not marked in him arbitrarily. You are, you are, you are uh, marked in him when you hear the word of truth and you believe. Uh, and so that's when you come under his provision. The, the best uh, analogy for uh, election, I think, is found in Matthew 22 with Jesus's parable of the wedding banquet. And there's actually four choices of God in that parable. Uh, you remember it's the king, he has a son, they have a wedding feast. And so he, he, he gets his, his servants together, sends out invitations to the people there in the city first. Uh, they stone the messengers, he gets angry, he sends the, the invitations out to the highways and the byways to the good and the bad alike, invite anybody who will come. Uh, people start showing up and they come to the wedding. The king sees one who is not dressed in the proper wedding garments. And so he has him cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then therefore, therefore, the conclusion is many are called, but few are elect, few are chosen. Well, there's actually four choices represented in that parable. First is the king's choice of the nation that he rules. That's obviously 
the king's choice, uh, God's choice to rule over the nation of Israel, and that Israel is the means by which the, the message will come. And so God's not choosing Israel to the neglect of all the other nations of the world. He's choosing Israel to be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. That's a big difference. Uh, the servants, same thing. He chooses the servants from Israel, not to the neglect of all other people. So he doesn't choose Paul and Peter and James and John to the neglect of all the other people. He chooses those people to be a benefit or a blessing to all the other people. But those are two choices of God that have nothing to do with the individual being saved. It's a choice of the nation to be a blessing to the rest of the world and cho choice of servants to be a blessing to the, everybody else in the world. And then the third choice is who he's going to send the message to, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And he sends it to the good and the bad of and alike. So notice that he's not sending or, or choosing based upon morality. He didn't choose the nation of Israel because they were more deserving or better. He didn't choose the servants because they were more deserving or better. And he doesn't choose the recipients of his invitation because they're better or more deserving. So all of those are unconditional in the sense that they're not conditioned upon the morality of those chosen, but none of them are soteriological. In other words, none of them are about anybody being chosen for salvation. It's only the fourth choice that's soteriological. That is the choice of those he grants entrance into the wedding banquet, the few who are elect. Many are called by the means that he has chosen. Few are elect. Well, who are the elect ones? Those who come in response to the invitation, and they're good or bad alike. Remember, so the invitation went to the good and bad people alike, rich and poor, male, female. So there's no condition with regard to merit. The invitation went to everybody. But who does he elect? Those who come clothed in the proper wedding garments. What does that represent? It's a condition. In other words, there is a condition to get into the banquet. You have to be clothed in the right wedding garments. What does that represent? Being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. How are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Through faith. It's by believing and trusting him that you're clothed in his righteousness. So it's not a condition upon your own righteousness. No one's chosen based upon that. Not even the, those who are called. Not even Israel's chosen based upon their own goodness or righteousness. The servants aren't chosen because of their own goodness and righteousness. The, the recipients of the invitations not, are not chosen because of their own goodness and righteousness, and the people who enter into the banquet are not chosen because of their own goodness or righteousness. Why are they chosen, therefore? They're chosen because they're clothed in the right garments. And how are they clothed in the right garments? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So you come clothed in his righteousness, you're granted entrance. That is election. That is the biblical doctrine of election. And what Calvinists will do, and I've demonstrated this in my book and other places, what Calvinists will do is they will pick out passages that are about election on those other three first points that I just made about servants being chosen uh, and those kinds of things, and they will apply it to their soteriological view of certain people being chosen for salvation. For example, John 15, 16, that I mentioned about, you know, John MacArthur using that verse saying, hey, look, Jesus saying, you did not choose me, I chose you. Well, look at the context of that. He's talking to his messengers. These are the people being picked to hand out the invitation. It's not about soteriology. It's about choosing messengers to be a blessing to the other nations of the world. And that has to be understood in its proper context. If you don't understand what he's talking about in his context, you can come to very far off conclusions like the Calvinist, I think, do in John 15, 16 and other passages when they try to apply uh, one election to their view of sociological election with regard to God choosing certain individuals before they're ever born to effectual salvation. Yeah, that's, wow. that, that's yeah. great. <laughs> that, yeah, there's just 
telling you, man, if you actually read the book, it's unfortunate. Brian doesn't read. He doesn't know how he didn't graduate second grade. <laughs> so he does audiobooks. Oh, I drive a lot. So I do a lot of audiobooks. <laughs> There's not an audiobook of this, and I already checked. <laughs> so, but I was like, dude, you got to read it. It's super good. Um, so the other thing I really wanted, really quickly want to flesh out that I want to talk about your apologetics, and then we'll close up real fast. Okay. But it was trying to be respectful yeah. of your time. Um, so the other thing is that came up. That comes up because we said it's a form of philosophical determinism, right? Now, what will naturally always happen is most Calvinists I talk to will not admit that it's determinism. You probably already know where I'm going with this. They'll say, no, no, it's compatibilism. And that which I uh, got some people laughing at us recently because I said compatibilism is just determinism with lipstick. Um, I'm coining that. I need to make it a T-shirt. But uh, <laughs> what would your uh, what would your thought? What could you quickly explain what compatibilism is? And would you explain to me how it somehow they believe actually reconciles the situation, which I think it doesn't? Would you be able to kind of flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah, um, the the whole term compatible is saying there's two things that are compatible. There are two, there are two concepts in the world that don't seem compatible, but, they, but what the compatibles are saying, they are compatible, okay? And one of those two things is determinism, theistic determinism. Yes, it is true. God determines whatsoever comes to pass. He is the sovereign. He is the one who controls everything, every decision, every thought, action, deed, everything is determined. But they also hold as compatible with determinism that men are responsible for their choices. In other words, you're still justly punished for what you end up doing. And they will punt to mystery as to how that is. They just believe the Bible teaches both and they are compatible. And so you're, 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 you're guilty for what you do because you want to do it. Now you can't choose what you want. Like you like we said before, your wanter is born broken. So you will either hate the things of God or want the things of God based upon God's decision about your nature. Cause he either, you're either born under Adam by his decree to hate God, or you're reborn under Christ to be made to want Christ. And so that's just theistic determinism. And so compatibilism, it drives me nuts when, when people try to say, oh, I'm a compatibilist, I'm not a determinist. Then what are you compatible with? <laughs> that's what compatibilism <laughs> is. It's like, why, why are you calling yourself a compatibilist then? It doesn't make, make any rational sense to say you're compatibilist when compatibilism is the fact that determinism is true and we're justly held responsible for our sins. That's the two points, the compatibles. And it, it, to me, it's just somebody who's trying to have his cake and eat it too, maybe that he's trying not to be called a determinist or trying to have to answer the problems of his deterministic worldview. And so he tries to distance himself from determinism however he can. And therefore he thinks he hadn't read this, the, the leading scholars who are compatibles to understand what compatibilism is, I guess. And so they think they're getting away from the, the, accusations against determinism by appealing to compatibilism, and, and they really aren't, uh, because the same issues that are raised against the, the theistic determinist um, are, are raised against the compatibilist, because compatibilists are theistic determinists. Um, if, if a hard determinist might come along and say, um, okay, because God determines everything, we're not morally accountable for our choices. And the compatibilist is saying, no, God does determine all things, but somehow we are morally accountable for our choices. That's the difference between the two worldviews. They're both just as deterministic. And when somebody hasn't studied the issues and don't understand the scholars from their side, they, they think they're somehow getting away from determinism by appealing to compatibilism. And that's just, they just don't understand what they're talking about. Now, there are some who actually are incompatibilists like me that they don't believe that it's compatible to say that, that 
God determines and you're free. In other words, you're, you're determined, but not determined is a equals not a, to me, it seems like a complete contradiction. So I'm an indeterminist. There are some Calvinists who are indeterminists. They, they also would agree that it is, uh, uh, libertarian free will is true, and that they still hold to sociological Calvinism. And those people are very interesting to have conversations with because they are all over the map uh, philosophically and theologically. And even the Calvinists um, who know what they're talking about, at least, will pick them apart because they're kind of a trying to, trying to ride the fence, so to speak, and, uh, and have their cake and eat it too, so to speak, to try to have a libertarian Calvinist, which We've run into a few of those and we've confronted a few of those on our podcast over the years about a kind of a weird, inconsistent kind of perspective that one tries to believe and teach that, yeah, we're libertarianly free, except for the one decision that matters. <laughs> and, that, and, and that decision, and that decision, God actually determines it. And every other decision is libertarianly free. And it's just like, okay, well, explain that. And where does that, that actually makes my brain anyway. hurt. Uh, I, yeah. I've, I've had conversations with them. I've had one, I had a conversation one time in a thread where it was both one of those, the kind of the fence sitter, libertarian free will Calvinist and a determinist Calvinist. And they're both telling me that I'm not explaining Calvinism correctly. I'm like, you guys talk and I'll just sit back and you guys have fun because you guys <laughs> don't agree <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, and the yeah. reason why I've always said compatibilism is determinism with lipstick is because what they'll say a lot of times they'll appeal to like, well, you are free, you don't have a free will, but your will is bound to sin, so you only desire to do evil. So that is how you know, oh, is there your evil desire? You'll just continue to do that. So that's how your will is free in this, and God's able to hold you accountable because you'll keep do, choosing to do evil. That's all you'll ever choose to be. Of course, granted, God has the ability to do to change my will, but he just chooses not to, so he shows his partiality. But right. anyway, um, yeah, it is very confusing. I don't know how anyone thinks dodging that's dodging the deterministic bullet because I'm like, it's still the same thing. Um, and what I have found to be a, an effective method when I'm talking to people about the total depravity, like you said, and how this all works to, works together because I brought this up to a pastor friend of mine recently and he was like well I would just say that you know mankind even when they do good without believing that they still have like an evil or a selfish desire with it like oh I gave to that homeless person because it made me feel good and I was like well there's a couple problems there one you're asserting their motive and you can't know that two why would anyone just be selfless just to make themselves feel good three what about the atheist who throws himself on a hand grenade to save somebody else what yeah. selfish intent is there for that? Um, so well, I think, and, that, and that's the whole problem is that what they're confusing what Paul is trying to get across. Um, and, and Paul's not trying to say that lost people can't ever do anything that's good or even that pleases God. Uh, there's many scriptures that seem to indicate just that fact that people prior, like uh, Cornelius, for example, prior to coming to Christ and being filled with the Spirit, he pleased the Lord um, based upon Acts 10 testimony, at least. And there are many other uh, passages that we could go to to show and demonstrate, I think, that, that, that people please the Lord or did good things. The point that Paul is getting at is no matter how many good things you do, you will never earn your righteousness. No matter how many right things you do, it's never enough. You will always fall short. It's never good enough. You will never seek God in such a way as to attain your own righteousness. You will never be good enough. You, you will always fall short. That doesn't mean that there's not some people out there who are genuinely trying to be good, and even trying to do good because they want to please God. Even there are people out there who are really trying to please God. Martin Luther, before his conversion, talked about walking up the steps on his knees and all these kinds of things. What's he doing if not seeking after God and trying to please God? 
Um, he's obviously trying to do it, but what, what does he have to learn? He has to learn no matter how much you try, no matter how much you beat yourself and hurt yourself and through asceticism and all these other things, you're never going to please God through your good deeds. That's what Paul's point is. And what Calvinists take it as is, oh, no one can ever do anything that's good or right um, or never do anything with the right motives. No, even if you do something good and you do it with the right motives, it still falls short. It is still a filthy rag apart from the atoning work of Christ. You need Christ. That's the point Paul is making. And Calvinists just, I think, are misunderstanding what Paul is getting at there in uh, Romans 3, for example. Boom sauce. Um, I love, <laughs> love it. So now uh, I would love to, I mean, I could seriously talk about run around in circles and chase Kelvin, the Calvinist tale for a very long time. Um, and before people don't say it, we both have studied Calvinism from Calvinists, read books, all the articles, listen to the debate. So before people say we just never really have understood it, we 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 do, uh, but we just disagree. And that's actually one of the things a friend of mine says, I just don't think you get it. I'm like, I get it. I even ask you, is this a problem? Like I will, in a conversation, do you believe? So you're saying, before I say this, you believe compatibilism was this and this and that. Yes. Okay. So you believe X, Y, Z. Yes. Okay. So the problem is with that. Boom. I don't think you understand it. No, I literally asked you <laughs> <laughs> your terms. Um, so anyway, um, the next thing is, so you are uh, a direct, the director of evangelism and apologetics, right? Um, there right. at, uh, at Texas Baptist. So the thing is I wanted to mention, so everyone always talks about your soteriology views, which is funny. The irony is, is that's all we're doing is sitting here talking to you about your soteriology yep. views, uh, right. <laughs> um, which would actually be maybe a cool thing to talk about apologetics. Have you had some time to talk purely about apologetics? Because um, that's my passion. That's actually my passion project. Um, so, but with that being said, you do that as well. So can you tell a yeah. little bit, maybe just quickly, what other things you do besides soteriology and how, what are your methods of maybe of apologetics? Are you a classical apologist, presuppositionalist, things like that? And, uh, how can people find more of maybe your apologetic work? Yeah, there at Texas Baptist, our evangelism and apologetics page, I work with Eric Hernandez, who our lead apologist, and uh, he does oh, a great job. Eric. And yeah, Eric does a great job in our unapologetic conferences, which I, I led prior to Eric coming on. I was the, the key lead to those, those conferences. And, um, and they train people not only in how to do evangelism, but how to do evangelism in a culture that's skeptical and that is asking questions. And so um, I'm in the process of developing curriculum. We have a curriculum called Can I Ask You a Question, which goes both ways when you think about it, because sometimes it's the Christian saying to the unbeliever, can I ask you a question? And then you lead into a evangelistic conversation. And other times it's the unbeliever asking the Christian. Hey, can I ask you a question? What do you think about Mormonism? Or what do you think about this thing? Or why does good things happen to bad people or bad pe things happen to good people, whatever. Uh, and the, these, these kind of conversations, um, we can't just assume that the average churchgoer knows how to have an evangelistic or an apologetic conversation with their neighbor. And so many people, matter of fact, statistics show that most people um, are fearful of talking about the gospel because they are fearful of being asked a question they don't know how to answer. And so equipping church members on how to engage in evangelistic conversation and be ready for apologetic questions, because you're going to run into that a lot more than you would have back in the 50s, of course. And so you got to be equipped to be able to know how to answer the questions and the doubts and the skepticism that is often uh, uh, prevalent in our world today. And so that's really what the heart of our ministry is, is to help churches to, be, to equip uh, the saints 
for the work of service in the role of evangelism and apologetics. And so um, I could go on days talking about all the different, you know, uh, events and projects and things that we've been working on and doing, but you can go to our website there at texasbaptist.org slash evangelism and uh, look at that, that page as well as it links to the apologetics page to find out more information about what we do and uh, how, if you're in Texas, how we can help your church, especially. Um, And we do, I do some individual training and, 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 uh, some consultations outside of Texas. I was just in Kansas and Tulsa, uh, Tulsa and Kansas, uh, respectively, um, uh, uh, this last couple of weeks. And so I, I'm willing to go outside the state of Texas, but at the same time, our major focus or our, our uh, main uh, emphasis is in here, here in Texas as Texas Baptist, helping our Baptist churches to equip the saints for the work of service with regard to evangelism and apologetics. Uh, and you said that you guys have have developed or currently are developing a curriculum. That the can I ask you a question? Is a curriculum we're currently developing? It's in okay. uh, the publisher's hands right now, and so we're in that, that process. Eric has written a, a portion of it, and it's still going through editing stages now. Gotcha. The only reason why I'm asking is I literally had somebody say the other day because I teach an apologetics course on Sunday mornings at my church, and I had one of our patrons be like, "All right, guys, I think it's time the church split actually develops a curriculum," and I'm like, "Dude." I work a lot of hours and I do this. I have no way to develop a curriculum right now. With, yeah. And as I'm a student, uh, who knows, might have you as a professor uh, one of these days, but Good. it's just, it's so much. So I think that's awesome. Uh, we'll definitely keep an eye out for that. So, um, and yeah, uh, I was actually, um, one of my favorite debates is between Dr. Braxton Hunter and Matt Dillahunty. Uh, and yeah. it's at an unapologetic conference and Dr. Lane Flowers actually opened the event. So before people just think that all he does is punch Calvinists all day, uh, <laughs> the man does a lot more things than that. And uh, he is actually, uh, I do actually appreciate a lot of your work. So, well, uh, real quick, Brian, do you have any other questions? No, I, I mean, if I have like a hundred, but we'll, we'll save the audience uh, listening to another two hours. Yeah. Another two hours of all this <laughs> babble. Uh, well, we can do it again sometime. If y'all want to get into more details on any other topic. Yeah. That'd be a it. lot of fun. Uh, and now, you know, I got your number so we can be in touch, but guys, if you haven't already, and if, if soteriology and the, stu- the doctrines of salvation uh, are interesting to you, please go check out soteriology 101. Please t- check out the Potter's promise. And if you want, you can read Dr. James. I don't want people to think that we are just only hating on Kelvis is because we disagree. You can read his as well, which is the Potter's Freedom. You can go ahead and break them down if you'd like and read read them both. But uh, I think through this conversation, everyone knows very strongly where we hang our hat. Can I do that slickly here? No, I can't. Uh, so, <laughs> but um, Dr. Flowers, thank you so much for coming on to the Church Split. Everyone, go check out his channel and his podcast, and of course, check out check Texas Baptists and see what they got all going on there. And hopefully, we could be on a lookout for this apologetics curriculum of Can I Ask You a Question? So, thank you all for chiming into the Church Split. Take care, and God bless. That was a lot of fun. He is cool. Yeah, you're a cool cat. The compatibilist thing is going to be the intro. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love how the entire time you're always on the hunt for that moment where you're like, ah, there it is. <laughs>